Meliconius butterflies are found throughout Mexico, Central, and South America. But oddly, many have converged on extremely similar wing color patterns, making it really difficult, if not impossible, for humans to distinguish species without using genetic data. Butterfly wing patterns partly serve as warnings to predators. Eat me and regret it. I don't taste good, and the cyanogenic glycosides I carry from the plants I eat will make you sick. By displaying similar warning patterns, pairs of species within a genus strengthen that message to predators. This phenomenon, called Mullerian mimicry, is found throughout animals. What does mimicry mean for other members of your species, though, when there are selection pressures to look a lot like the butterfly next door? And how does a female know whether a male that comes by belongs to her species? It's all about vision. Butterflies and other insects see with compound eyes. Unlike our simple eyes, which consist of one structural unit for perceiving light, compound eyes are collections of thousands of such units called omatidia. Each omatidium is a long, thin structure containing a cluster of photoreceptor cells, each one of those topped with a tiny lens. Insects combine information from each omatidium to produce an image. Recall that each of the cones in our retinas detect light of only certain wavelengths based on the photopigments they contain. Insect omatidia function the same way. Each one detects only a particular wavelength, which is determined by its photopigment. In the show, we'll refer to those photopigments as opsins. Like humans, insects are generally trichromats, meaning they can detect three light wavelengths. Unlike most of us who see blue, green, and red wavelengths, insects tend to perceive blue, green, and ultraviolet light. Heliconius butterflies go one step further. Many are tetrachromats. They have four distinct photoreceptors and this may help female Heliconius pick the right boyfriend. Our guest today is Adriana Briscoe, an evolutionary biologist at UC Irvine who studies color vision in butterflies. She recently discovered that females of one species of Heliconius possess two UV photoreceptors. Adriana thinks that the second receptor helps butterflies discriminate subtle UV yellow wing pigment patterns, something you and I couldn't see. If you have just one UV receptor, you still can see UV photons, but you can't tell the difference in wavelength between UV photons. You could tell apart a UV wavelength and a blue wavelength with the two receptors. That You can do that discrimination task, but if you're talking about wavelengths that are really close together in the UV, you can't tell the difference. So the fact that we had this functional data suggested that these butterflies might have UV color vision. In today's episode, we talked to Adriana about the diversity, evolution, and basic operating processes of insect vision. We also talk about her path into science and her passion for getting underrepresented groups involved in biology. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. Well, Adriana, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Um, it's really great to have you on, and we're looking forward to unpacking a lot of interesting biology about insect eyes and insect vision and color vision more more broadly and sort of talk about your, your research interests. We'd like to start, though, also by talking a bit about just your, your background and your path into biology and into your, your current position. Um, and I want to start just by saying that I, I met you first at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory near Gothic, Colorado. And uh, this was in the mid-90s, probably the early 90s. And I was a, a field tech for Carol Boggs. I came out and chased butterflies around and helped her do mark recapture on the, on the population. And I remember you were there. You were working with both Carol and 
Ward Watt on a population genetics pro uh, project, I believe. And my, my recollection of you is that you spent a lot of time collecting flowers and pressing <laughs> and drying them. Is that, is that an accurate memory? I did collect some flowers. Uh, I, I um, actually collected them for, to draw them. Uh, yes, I would, I would bring them back to the, the cabin and try to keep them alive for as long as possible. And so when we weren't doing field work, I would, I would pull them out and pull out my pad of paper and pens and, and do a little drawing. So yes, so I did, I did some botanical work when I was there just for fun. Awesome. So, so I want to sort of go forward from that that point to your but but let's let's step back in time too and just talk about so how you know tell us about your background before that and how did you end up at Stanford and interested in in biology um so my family both sides of the family uh my grandparents lived in an area of California southern California called the Inland Empire so they lived in towns in the San Bernardino Valley below the San Bernardino Mountains and my father is well before I was born, my parents grew up in communities that were uh, very working class. So they were both from working class families. Um, my mother's father uh, was actually born in Mexico and was brought to the United States when he was two years old. He was brought to New Mexico. My grandmother, his wife, was the daughter of also Mexican immigrants from a different part of Mexico. Uh, her grandfather had come to the United States about a decade before the Mexican Revolution occurred, uh, and his daughter followed him. Uh, so my great-grandmother came just right before the Mexican Revolution occurred because of the violence that was occurring in the part of Mexico they were from. So they were from Michoacan, which is also the same state as you find the monarch butterflies. So I've been uh, learning a little bit more about this side of the family, which uh, is very interesting. So. When I grew up, um, I went to the same high school as my mother and my grandmother, which was in the town of Colton. And part of Colton for even to trace back to the colonial period uh, was inhabited by people of Mexican descent. And so there have been different waves of, of people living in Colton of Mexican descent. And so this high school my grandmother went to was, however, um, a school that really only white students were ended up going to. Uh, so even though there were hundreds of Mexican school kids living in the district who went to elementary school and middle school, by the time she graduated from high school, she was the only uh, woman with a Spanish surname. Um, there were two, two brothers with Spanish surnames, uh, but all the students, the few students with Spanish surnames that had started out four years before they all dropped out. And one of the reasons was because of the Great Depression. So my grandfather had to drop out and work. But of course, there was also tremendous discrimination against um, Mexican people. So um, they would end up in very low paying jobs, working in the citrus industry, picking um, oranges and grapefruits or working in the cement plant across the street from the school. So when I grew up and went to high school, um, the effects of, you know, longstanding poverty and discrimination were still in effect in my high school. So a very large proportion of students would drop out. And these were predominantly students of Mexican descent. They would drop out of school. And so I grew up with this idea of like, you know, it's kind of the impossibility of escaping from um, 
poverty and, you know, even graduating from high school. Um, but what, ins what really inspired me was that both my mother and then my grandmother became school teachers. Um, and, you know, their, you know, dedication and admiration of teaching and education was what, you know, helped me uh, aspire to other things. Um, so that's a long story. But um, when I started out, I didn't really have an idea that um, I could go to a place like Stanford coming from the place that I came from. Yeah. So, so tell me about the, the sort of transition mentally and emotionally about that, like presumably toward the very end of high school. So what, what made you realize that, that this was possible? I don't know. Some of it had to do with like feeling that there was like the world was unfair <laughs> and, um, you know, I was going to try anyway, even though it seemed like a long shot. Um, yeah, just kind of go for it and, and try to ignore people that say, um, you know, let's say you can't, uh, you're not good enough or whatever. Where did you, oh man, it, art is big into the dad jokes. So it's really <laughs> no. hard for me now not to try to play art and do a dad joke. Where were you bitten by the insect? <laughs> um, the insect bug. <laughs> I mean, where it was there some experience in high school or before that you know not just move going to Stanford, but focusing on what you ultimately came to do. At what point did that click for you? Um, I would say my earliest memories of insects come from the garden, really, with uh, my grandfather and my grandmother uh, growing tomatoes, and of course, you know the beautiful hawk moths that would show up and lay eggs and then feast on the tomato plants. Manduka, one of my favorite species. Yeah, helping them pluck them off of their precious tomatoes, uh, finding that really interesting. So that's probably one of the earliest memories. And then I was, I was lucky because my mother took me to a summer camp for middle school students at the local San Bernardino County Museum. And it, and it turns out that the Mojave Desert which is near or in San Bernardino County has these insect fossil accretions that are in a very kind of a soft matrix. And so the instructors kind of amazingly had brought these, these little accretions in and they gave each one of the kids. some. I got one of these little accretions and you could dissolve them in dilute acid. And some of them had insect microfossils in them. Wow. And it was, it was a pretty exciting experience, partly because my parents were really you know, they were kind of fussy, like, you know, don't touch things, you know, like, don't touch that, don't, you know, so, so, like, somebody actually allowing me to pick up something that was, like, precious and rare, and like, <laughs> do something with it, was, was, like, wow, this is so exciting, and, and, you know, and just sort of kind of stuck with me, and, and so that was, I think, a very formative experience. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask one more question about um, your, your path into your sort of current research interests, so about um, research on vision and color vision and how insect eyes work. So what, what, what was the experience at Stanford? And then you later did a PhD at Harvard with Naomi Pearson, Richard Lewinton. Um, so, so what was the transition into evolutionary biology and, and vision research? So I was raised Catholic, um, not practicing Catholic, but I was raised Catholic. And so when I was in high school, I was taking catechism classes. And then as a freshman at Stanford, I took a class by a Jesuit named Terhard de Jardin, who was trained as a paleontologist. And so we, we read a book called Christianity and Evolution. And, and that 
book uh, was sort of an intellectual link with studying uh, philosophy of science. There were a number of individuals studying both the history and philosophy of, of biology at Stanford, who I then went on and, and studied with. So I also studied history and philosophy of science at Stanford. And that interest, um, so reading, you know, things about Darwin and some of the 19th century German developmental biologists, that tied in with our study of biology, uh, our bio major. And I knew I wanted to do research. I had no idea really what that meant exactly. And so I just did something really simple. When we were students, I, you know, asked professors that taught the BioCore if they had room in their labs for a student. And, and so that's how I got my foot in the door. Um, to do a couple more questions of sort of your, your background. And um, I mean, on one level, I'm not sure how much you want to talk about it because of how much COVID fatigue everyone is experiencing right now. But, you know, it's something that Art and I talk about a lot, what it means to be especially a graduate student or an undergraduate right now, trying to set yourself on a path towards a career in science. So what do you think are the biggest challenges and opportunities now for students? And I mean, to the extent that you have advice about circumventing them, I'm sure people would love to hear that. Yeah, I think it's really challenging right now with COVID, we had to, as I'm sure you did as well, we had to basically stop all in-person lab work. And we were rearing butterflies in the greenhouse before the pandemic. And then we had to stop doing that because it's very labor intensive. But now we've been able to start that just in the past couple months because the campus is opening up a bit and, and it's possible to have more than one person working on this topic, but it is, it is really difficult. I mean, I would say, and this is, this is a challenge because a lot of our undergraduates aren't on social media that scientists necessarily are on. And so they're not necessarily aware of some of the opportunities that exist. So when I talk to my undergraduates, you know, I ask them what kind of social media they're on and they often um, are not on Twitter. Too old fashioned, huh? <laughs> As I guess it's too old fashioned. And of course, as far as like, you know, research opportunities for students, that's one of the ways in which I find out about a lot of opportunities that I try to pass along to my students is is through Twitter. So I think that's one tool that a lot of young people are just not aware of as a possible place to find internships, labs to, you know, to work in. I mean, in a lot of ways, I would say that since the days that Art and I were undergraduates, it's a lot easier to collect information about potential labs and opportunities than it was back then. Back then, you had to go and ask somebody for their list of publications to really figure it out. There wasn't, there weren't websites. Right, and they pull the paper out of their like uh, their drawers, right? Mm-hmm. A physical uh, piece of paper. <laughs> yes, ask them for their reprints. Yeah, <laughs> yeah those are the days. Those are the days. Yeah. So Adriana, I've been trying to convince Art too that we need more of a TikTok presence. <laughs> he wants me to dance on TikTok. I think that's it. There we go. <laughs> um, I want to ask also about something else that happened a few years ago. So in, in 2018, you won a, a big award, the Distinguished Scientist Award from SACNAS, which is the Society for Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science. 
Um, and you've got a, a link to the video of the presentation on your website, which I which I watched, and and you just were so obviously happy and humbled by by this award. So maybe tell can you just tell us about SACNES and your interactions with the society and you know what what they've done for you and what you've done for them. Well, I first became aware of the organization when I was a graduate student. I was asked to go as a representative from my graduate program. And at the time, it was really a small, very small meeting. And it was primarily run by faculty who were applied mathematicians uh, who had started, who had received funding to start applied math camps uh, for undergraduates. So the meeting was just a few hundred, a couple hundred students and just a handful of faculty. And this, I mean, in terms of the subject matter that was represented, I couldn't really relate to it, but it, it was exciting from the point of view of I'd only ever had one Latino STEM faculty member prior to that. He was actually at the, he was actually at Harvard. Um, his name is jo- Joseph Montoya. He's a biological oceanographer and he, he taught my invertebrate biology grad course. And that was, uh, that was huge for me. Uh, and then this, meeting, you know, I get to see that there are these mathematicians and uh, there were a few, just a handful of women faculty. uh, And that was just the very, very beginning. And so the award speech that you saw was at a meeting in San Antonio and there were 4,000 people in that room when I spoke. Wow. Wow. That's some growth. Holy cow. So I was really in awe. That, those are the people sitting down at the, the banquet tables. It was, it was really amazing and a very inspiring organization. I, I cannot um, praise these people enough for what they've done to grow it and, and to create real opportunities for, for people. And so I try to send as many of my students to that meeting as possible. And it's open, it's open to whoever wants to go. You know, it's not simply Hispanics, Latinos, Chicanos, Native Americans, anyone who wants to go can go. Um, it's very mm-hmm. inspiring. And there, there must be a lot of biology that happens there now too, right? I mean, yes, and other subjects. So there's, there's, you know, there's both... Um, oral presentations and poster sessions and it's there's a lot of recruitment that goes on from companies as well as universities it's it's a huge 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 event so um well congratulations oh thank you well what have i done for them i wouldn't say that i've done anything for them other than there haven't been enough women who who have reached a senior level and so you know um I'm one of the women who've reached a senior level. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we talk vision? Sure. Um, I'm going to ask you, this is a gigantic lift, so feel free to take this in any direction you would like. (laughs) How do insect eyes work? (laughs) (laughs) In 30 seconds or less. Maybe, yeah, 30 seconds or less. Contrast it with vertebrate eyes. I mean, of course, take it in any direction you want, but I know that's a lot to ask. Well, I mean, I think the easiest place to start um, is that insect eyes don't have the kind of focal abilities that, uh, that our eyes have because they are composed of thousands of individual unit eyes. 
each having their own tiny, tiny little lens. Uh, and those are called omatidia. And in those omatidia, you have, you have basically two components which are shared across nearly all animal eyes. You have one, a photoreceptor neuron, at least, at least one, um, usually more. So you have at least a photoreceptor neuron, and then you have a second cell that has pigments in it, and the pigments do various things. They shield the photoreceptor neuron from too much light, and so they allow the photoreceptor cell to also not be overwhelmed by light and then be blinded by the light. They also allow the cell to perceive orientation. So if you don't have at least part of the light blocked, you can't really figure out the orientation of things that, that are in your visual field. And they also have a protective function, so they protect um, the cell from damage from ultraviolet light, um, which the um, lens can do that to a certain extent too, some of them, uh, especially if they have pigments in them. So, so it's weird to think of eyes that don't focus, right? Because our own eyes, you know, it's so important to be able to focus on near versus far. So, so what does that mean for the way insects interact with the world that they can't focus their eyes? Um, they do have they do have some focal ability, um, but they're just it's just not it's just not the way ours is. You know, we we can we can see things um, at a distance. You know, if we have you know perfect vision. Uh, that they just they just can't. Um, yeah. I used to have perfect vision, and now I have these. So <laughs> yes, oh my gosh, I have so many glass, different kinds of glasses now. It's sad. <laughs> it's really sad. Yes. Um, yeah. So I mean, one way in which people think about insect vision is that a lot of the processing goes on at the level of the retina, in the sense that um, a lot of our visual processing takes place in our brain, but there's a lot that can take place at this peripheral level in insect eyes that allow them, you know, to have, you know, fast response times, which we would hope they would have considering that many insects, for example, fly and they need to be able to respond quickly, you know, as they're flying. So it's a little bit like reflex circuits in us, like very short neural mm -hmm. lengths and sort of very localized processing so that it all goes fast. Yes, exactly. Uh, in fact, yesterday I was out in my backyard and I looked up and I saw these two swallowtails that were that were in a a, um, a courtship against the blue sky. It was very beautiful. There were these yellow swallowtails against the blue sky, and this bird just came right in and just like you know bombed them and like pushed them apart. And then one of them chased after the bird. It was it was quite the sight. <laughs> wrong wrong mating object. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, you know. If I just think about the weirdness of insect compound eyes and, you know, what you just said about sort of local neural processing, um, has anyone been able to deduce what images insects actually perceive with compound eyes? And and I just want to say, like, there's, there's these tropes, right, that, that you see all the time, like, because they have compound eyes, each omatidium acts as like a pixel, and so you get these, like highly pixelated views of the world. Um, and another another is like extreme visual distortion, right? So I don't know if you've seen this animated short film called The Fly by uh, a Hungarian director named Ferenc Rofus. It's like a three minute video basically. And it's got this like super distorted field of view and it's what a fly is seeing as it, as it flies around. So, so the broad question is like, can we actually understand what the insects are perceiving visually and how they stitch it all together? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, I mean, as a, 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 the way I approach it is that we can't really know what they're seeing. They have to tell us, and the only way they can tell us is through their behavior. So, um, you know, I try not to speculate about that. I know, you know, I've seen, you know, I've seen the Gary Larson compound eye with like, you know, a thousand little faces (laughs) and stuff like that. Um, in some senses, I think it's, it's a bit of an unknowable question. I think, I think of those, those, those visual images of, of, you know, Larson's and other folks as being, you know, kind of a, they're speculative and they're imaginative. There's also, um, you also, you might come across these, um, photographs that people do where they use special colored filters to photograph flowers. And they say, this is what the flower really looks like through a bee eye or through a monarch eye or whatever. Those are all like, that's all kind of like speculative and it only gets at maybe, um, pattern um it doesn't really get a color because we don't have the same color vision that they do but maybe it'll help us pick out certain features of pattern that um, we wouldn't be able to see since we don't have a bi a b visual system or a butterfly visual system yeah i get that you're um we want to move into the you know the the nuts and bolts of your work and a step in that direction from the general conversation about insect vision is, is the color dimension so I'm sorry, I have this vertebrate bias, everything. It's not just that I am one, but it's what I study. Um, is there something different about how insects perceive color than vertebrates or are the rules by and large the same? Uh, I think we, I think, I think the rules are similar. I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, if you have, you know, two receptors, you know, you know, at a higher order, you know, they may, you know, their input might be additive or it might be, inhib- you know, it might be excitatory or it might be inhibitory. And so then when you add a third channel, you can have like different combinations of like two, um, you know, are excitatory and when one's inhibitory um, and then the other two, you know, so you can you can come up with these combinations. And, and, and that seems to be true um, between both um, insects and vertebrates. So from that kind of simple logic they do share some um similarities now i would say the biggest difference that we're aware of is that because we're humans um you know we do not have we do not have ultraviolet sensitive photoreceptors and part of the reason is that ultraviolet light is filtered out by our um our corneas and so if we have cataract surgery um you pull and you pull out the, that that cornea um then you can see more uv um, photons than you can normally, but um, insects and other animals have photopigments that can sense even further into the ultraviolet, and so, so we're missing out on what a lot of other organisms can see. So, so just to summarize that, so we're we're sort of focused on red, green, and blue, and they're more sort of green, blue, and ultraviolet. So the whole thing is shifted toward shorter wavelengths. So, so why why is that? If you had to say at some broad macroevolutionary level, why why are insects focusing on shorter wavelengths? Well, there's some you have to be careful because there are some insects with red receptors and that have good red green color vision. So the extent to which so so I would say that some insects like some butterflies that's much wider than what humans have. Humans have this, and then they have like this. Um, some of it has to do with not knowing enough about the visual systems of enough insects. So it could be that there are actually a lot that are, you know, much broader um, rather than just simply shifted to shorter wavelengths. 
one thing that I think permits insects to um, tolerate shorter wavelength light is that they're not, they're not, they don't live as long. So the kind of damage that accumulates with short wavelength exposure is kind of is kind of irrelevant for them. I mean, because their lifespan is sort of short, so they're not going to accumulate a lot of you know UV damage in their eyes. Um, why have humans lost, you know, short wavelength receptors that would allow them to see um, in the UV? I mean. It's also possible for us that since we were very long lived that, you know, if we had very UV transparent lenses, it would be bad for our vision. You know, we would, you know, we'd end up with different kinds of um, retinal damage. And of course, over most of our evolutionary history, bad vision, you know, would would mean death. Yeah, great complimentary way of asking it, right? Well, let's um let's dive into some of the molecular mechanisms and um, some of the things you've worked on uh, recently. So one of the, or maybe the only photopigment in insects is opsins. So tell us about opsins. So what, what are they and what do they do in this whole process? Sure. Opsins are transmembrane domain proteins. So that means they have these um, helical... Uh, domains which sit in in, in membranes. Um, these membranes in insect eyes are stacked up. They're called microvilli. And the opsin is bound to a molecule, a chromophore, uh, which is derived from vitamin A, which is like why you're supposed to eat your carrots and, and other, um, other orange veggies. Um, that it's by itself uh, is able to absorb light. And so when it absorbs light, it undergoes a, uh, a shape change. And that shape change gets um, translated to the opsin protein, which itself go undergoes a, a shape change. And that sets off a chain of events in the cells, which causes the cell, which is a neuron, to, um, to fire. And so that's, it sends a little electrical signal that gets transmitted to the brain that um, a photon has been detected. So the opsin protein, what it does is it changes the probability that a particular photon of a particular wavelength will cause the chromophore to change its shape. So the chromophore is usually ultraviolet absorbing, but the opsin that's around it can cause it to absorb either shorter wavelength or longer wavelength light. So how, how similar are the insect opsins to the photopigments that are in our own eyes? Is there a clear sort of homology there? They're part of a, a large gene family. Um, so insects actually do have a vertebrate-like opsin, uh, one, <laughs> uh, and, and humans have an insect-like opsin. Human, the human insect-like opsin is called melanopsin, and it is a photopigment that controls our iris, our um, ability to um, open and close our iris is as a function of, of light. Hmm. Oh, super cool. In terms of the, the molecular mechanisms by which uh, opsins are tuned to different wavelengths, so what is it about the molecules that diversifies to give that spectral sensitivity divergence? Yeah, that's a great question. So the chromophore has a series of single and double bonds, which means that there are these um, electrons that are sort of zipping around and what the opsin protein does is uh, if you position charged or uncharged amino acids 
in the right place um, around that system of alternating double and single bonds that um, changes the electrostatic environment of the chromophore and then that is how you end up with you know either long wavelength photons causing isomerization or short wavelength photons causing it to isomerize by changing those amino acid charge charges you change that electrostatic environment of the chromophore One of the things that fascinates me and confuses me too is the ridiculous diversity. I mean, you've alluded to it already uh, among butterflies, but some dragonflies and damselflies, it's up to 30 different opsin genes. I mean, that it's not that that's giving them amazing, super discriminating color vision, right? So what what's that about? Why, why do they have such diversity? Yeah, some of it has to do with the fact that dragonflies and damselflies have both an aquatic and a terrestrial stage of life. And so there are different opsins expressed at different stages. So that's one part of it. Uh, their compound eye is, is distinctive uh, between those stages. It's not the same eye. And so the kinds of opsins that might be beneficial underwater won't necessarily be the, exactly the same ones beneficial you know, when you're flying around. That's part of it. Another part is that they're very old um, insects. They've been around for a long time. So there's been more time for gene duplication to happen and to, um, for some of those genes to stick around over evolutionary time. They, you know, they have complex predatory behavior that, that has led to special, specialization in different parts of the eye. So like the, the, the dorsal, dorsal part of the eye is you know, looking for water often when they're trying to find, um, you know, either places to, to, to lay their, their eggs or to find a mate, you know, they're searching for water and then um, their ventral eye is looking at the sky. And so for that, you know, they're going to be more specialized for predator avoidance. So that's part of the reason why there's so many. But um, we think in general that genes that are not crucial for the biology of an organism have a tendency to gene to duplicate more rapidly and so a lot of sensory receptors fall into that category so opsins olfactory receptors gustatory receptors these are all gene families especially if you're talking about taste and smell that duplicate and turn over rapidly between species and that's because they're not doing some crucial biological function. Um, so that's part of it too, is that they're not as essential. I mean, they're doing something essential, but they're not as essential as some other um, genes that, that don't do that. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like like sensing your world, seeing it and tasting it, those, those would seem like crucial things, right? Because they're providing the information that you're using to make decisions about where to go and what to do. But is it also that there's like lots of overlap in, in what they do, like there's lots of sort of redundancy from one one gene product to another? Sure. Yes, absolutely. You can, I mean, they're going to start out redundant and then one of the copies has to accumulate mutations to, to begin to produce a slightly different um, absorbance. And that can take that can take time. Um, there's also the issue of gene regulation. So you also have to accumulate mutations to Put them in different cell types. Otherwise, your cells are your cells are um, going to be broader. 
I mean, color vision requires something very specific. Um, just because you have two opsins, they also have to be expressed in different cells. And the reason for that is that if they're expressed in the same cell, all you're getting is a broader sensor. You're not going to get something that can see color with just two opsins in one cell in terms of expression. Hmm. Gotcha. So I think I, I know the answer to this, but it, it, it's, well, I'm going to ask it anyway. How much work has been done to describe opsin diversity among insect species? I mean, you sort of we're alluding to the possibility that dragonflies and damselflies have this diversity because of their predatory lifestyle and the sometimes growing up in the water and then living life, part of life, um, flying around. Can we see anything at a broader scale that in general species that live longer lives or sort of occupy more diverse or variable habitats have these diverse option genes? More data. Do we need more data? <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. I mean, it's it's a question that I've been interested in for a really long time, and we just didn't have the data. So when I first started working on this when I was a graduate student, there 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 were no there were no butterfly opsins that had been published or cloned. Uh, there was some Drosophila opsin sequence. Um, there was some honeybee sequence, but um, so it's just taken a very long time. And I gave a a talk at the ESA meetings a couple of years ago where I summarized like, you know, 16 years of insect vision studies and the number of species that had been characterized in that time in terms of physiology, you know, and or um, sequence data was really shockingly small. Um, however, that is that talk I gave before we started seeing all of these um, hi-fi genomes where you can take a single wild-caught individual and sequence it and get a really good um, reference genome, I think we're going we're gonna to be able to start asking that question. We just don't have the data, I would say, to be really rigorous about that particular question. Hmm. Cool. I wanted to follow up briefly on the, the talk about dragonflies and damselflies and just ask, so, so what is the the current world record holder in terms of, you know, the insect that expresses the most different photopigment sensitivities at the same time, and that therefore we might say has sort of the broadest and most discriminating color vision. Is that is that known? Oh my gosh. Um, I would say that in terms of what's known, there's actually um, a researcher who's involved in both of these studies. So Kentaro Arakawa has done and his, his lab have done recordings on many different butterflies as well as um, work on, on um, dragonflies. And so there's a butterfly which I believe has something like um, 10 spectrally distinct kinds of photoreceptors that have been recorded from. That's just... And, and, it, and it expresses those all at the same time. Well, the, they, this is just based on recordings. This is not based on sequencing opsins and, and counting them up. Um, as you mentioned earlier, these dragonflies can have more than that. Um, I do not know that that many receptors have been recorded from, like, it's just based on transcripts. Now I have, I have a comment to make about transcripts because, um, we have found looking at butterflies when we can detect the messenger RNA of opsins in some butterflies, and then we look at the protein, it's not there. And we found this in more than one species. So just because you can 
sequence using RNA-seq or DNA-seq and find an opsin gene does not mean, even if you have a transcript that's expressed, it doesn't mean that you have a protein and that that therefore is tra translated into a receptor with a distinct sensitivity. So that's why the physiology is extremely important. You cannot just jump from DNA sequence or even RNA sequence to making that inference. So it's a it's a hard question. So I would say right now the probably the world record in terms of receptors is for, it's been reported from as a butterfly. Yeah, we we had a conversation uh, the, uh, with Mark Denny last spring, and it's going to be um, a conversation that's released actually later this afternoon. And uh, we, we sort of ended up at the same conclusion, like physiologists get to work. We need more physiology <laughs> on all of these systems. So. Absolutely. And I, um, yes, I have a student who's on the job market right now, and I am really hoping that he gets a job and his special skill does not get lost for exactly that reason. Yeah. I mean, this is this functional work. You don't, you're preaching to the choir with art and me. I mean, we're very much physiologists and, and totally sold on this level of analysis. But for some of the things that you do, I mean, the effort that goes into doing the work, training butterflies, sounds terrifying. Um, but to be able to ask these queens, you sort of start at the level of functionality. And there's this paper, I think you told us, was just uh, impressed now at Experimental Biology, where you're Heliconius errato asking, among other things, about its potential for um, true UV color vision. So can you talk us through why you were doing that and how you got to the answer. Yeah, so um, so in 2010, uh, my, paper, my lab uh, published a paper where we reported the discovery of a, a UV opsin duplication in the genus Heliconius, and this was based on mRNA sequences. Uh, and in that paper, we did have some physiology, not, not intracellular electrophysiology, but we did have some physiology where we were able to um, provide estimates of what the peak sensitivities of four different um, receptors might be. So we had some functional evidence. We didn't have any protein expression data. We had on the one hand RNA data and then we had these experiments with insect eyes that suggested that there were in fact four rhodopsins that were functional in, the, in these eyes. So this is really interesting because it suggests that there is the possibility of UV color vision, so the ability to discriminate wavelengths in the UV range that you couldn't do if you just have a UV receptor and a blue receptor. So what you have to uh, appreciate about this is that if you have just one UV receptor, you still can see UV photons, but you can't tell the difference in wavelength between UV photons. Um, you could tell apart, you know, a UV wavelength and a blue wavelength with the two receptors that they can, you can do that discrimination task. But if you're talking about wavelengths that are really close together in the UV, you can't tell the difference. So the fact that we had this functional data suggested that these butterflies might have UV color vision. So that was posited in 2010. And so I wanted to try to set go about um, testing this and there had been a student who visited from Alma Kalber's lab um, who had worked on red-green color vision in Heliconius um, and he demonstrated that and so 
I thought we could try to do something similar for UV color vision. But in between, we discovered something completely unexpected when we looked at the protein levels. So it turns out that um, in Heliconius erato, the species we focused on, that only females express both UV opsins. Males only express one of the two. And that completely um, was unexpected. And why was it unexpected? Um, it's because although we know that there are sexual dimorphic eyes in insects, most of the species that have sexual dimorphic eyes have sexually dimorphic bodies. And heliconias are not sexually dimorphic in terms of their bodies. So we weren't expecting this. Also because in behavioral studies, nobody ever pays attention to what the two sexes are really kind of doing. Like they're all kind of lumped together in a lot of um, natural history studies. Um, like no one really dives into the details. So that was a big surprise. And that gave us more, that gave us a framework for setting up these experiments at this point. So the prediction would be that females would have UV color vision, males would be UV color blind. And then species also lacking a second UV receptor would be UV colorblind. So we tested two other species. Um, and so that's the origin of it, was this discovery that my lab made, uh, which we published in 2010. So, so what are the actual behavioral trials that you do to, to challenge them to distinguish colors in UV? Yeah, so you um, we use narrow band light, so meaning just a few um, wavelengths around a, a peak. And so we picked two lights that would stimulate um, the two UV receptors. And how far apart are they in, in terms of sensitivity? Yeah, they're 10 nanometers apart. Okay, so pretty close, right? They're pretty close. Um, it would be nice if there were filters that were closer together, but that's a technical limitation. It's very hard to actually um, I should say people don't sell them. <laughs> um, so we're, we used what we could, we could get our hands on in terms of um, the distance between them. So you have to train the butterfly to associate a sugar reward with one of the colors. You present the butterfly with both colors at, the, at equal intensity, and you train them over a, over a period of about a week. Um, and then you give them a choice between you know, either lights, uh, and then they can make a choice and you count the choices, but you have to do this over different relative intensities because insects are positively phototactic, meaning that they will follow the brighter light. Um, regardless of what color it is. Regardless of what color it is. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you have to, you have to rule that out. Um, and so what we, what we found was that male Heliconia serrato follow the brighter light, but the females are able to discriminate the colors no matter what the relative intensities are. Hmm. How much variation do you see among the individuals in the rate at which they learn this? They make that coupling. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of individual variation. I mean, these are, for butterflies, these are fairly long-lived, which is, um, you know, really exciting. Uh, and, yeah, they there's a lot of variation in how long it takes them, what their motivation is, Um you know, we look at we look at their state. Like, you know, did we ding their wing, and so they can't really fly? Um, different things happen. Um, probably something fun, which we haven't published this, but it's really fun. And I'm not, I don't I'm just gonna like throw it out there. Um, we have found um, that some of our butterflies 
on the basis of morphology look like females. So if you if you look at their genitalia, they look like females. But then when you um, do RNA seq on their heads, or you do, or you or you look at their protein expression, they have male opsin expression, and those butterflies have Wolbachia in them. Hmm. So some some um, Wolbachia, the, the, what Wolbachia does in Heliconius is not very well understood, but in, in some other insects, you can have all kinds of wild things happen with Wolbachia. Yeah, do you want to say a couple of what those wild things are? I mean, the insect enthusiasts that are listening would know, but uh, I'm always wowed by Wolbachia. Yeah, um, in some really extreme cases, you know, they can take um, genetic males and totally feminize them to the point where the adult butterfly can um, mate and engages in, you know, mating behavior and um, they can even lay eggs. Um, those are in some species, I mean, not closely related to Heliconia. So like, who knows? No one's really, really um, investigated Wolbachia behavior in Heliconius. Um, but this is an example of, you know, this could be a Wolbachia, a bacterial driven, you know, visual polymorphism, you know, in an insect which is pretty interesting. So can you say more about, I mean, do you have feelings for why the females are doing something and the males are doing something else? I mean, what what is potentially that reason? Well, that's an open area of investigation. We are, you know, you know, I would say we're in like the gathering of, of um, possibility stage and we're, we're trying to look at some of these hypotheses. So, so initially when we published the first paper before we knew that it was a dimorphic trait, you know, we speculated that it had to do something with the fact that Heliconius use a new kind of, new for them, kind of um, pigment to produce yellow on their wings. So their close relatives also have yellow, but it's a different chemical yellow than what Heliconius use. And so you have to ask, like, well, why would you shift the particular chemical you're using on the wings? This, by the way, does not mean that no other butterflies use this chemical. It just means that this was, you know, a shift that occurred when the genus Heliconius evolved. So we speculated that maybe this would help them discriminate Heliconius from non-Heliconius mimics that were close relatives. And actually, um, it turns out that the male eye, which only has three receptors in our model, is actually better at telling the difference between those two kinds of yellows, between the heliconius yellow and then the yellow of mimics that are close relatives but use a different pigment. We thought this was because the heliconius yellow also has a little UV component, but it, that's actually not the case. Now I think it's because the shape of the yellow pigment curve is really different between them, and it's different in the visible part of the spectrum. And it turns out that the male eyes do a better job of that discrimination task than the female eyes. So so why do they do better if they have fewer options that they're throwing at the job? It's a trade-off. Every receptor you add can mean that there's an erosion in color vision in a different part of the spectrum. It's like a, it's a little it's a little bit of a zero sum game. So you might optimize one part of the spectrum in terms of color discrimination and then decrease another. And so it just turns out that having those three plus this this particular um, shifted UV receptor is just better at that particular task. Now, females, I mean, there's a lot of things that could be going on with, with both males and females. Um, so I'm not saying that this is the only 
reason why it occurred, but it was just something that we noticed that the color changed at the same time this new receptor evolves. Could they be related? Um, we have now looked at the female visual system and we have found that they're better at discriminating these yellow inner corollas from the outer orange petals in these flowers that they specifically collect pollen from. So as Art knows, um, pollen extends the lifespan of heliconius butterflies, both males and females, but for females, it also means that they can lay more eggs. It, it expands their ability to um, produce more offspring. And so they're really motivated to collect pollen. And it turns out that having two UV opsins gives them an advantage in this in this particular task. And these flowers, I mean, they're they're pretty small and they're they're like um, rainforest vines. So they're small visual targets. Um, they're not that easy to see, um, but they find them and then they visit them every single day once they find a plant. They're really loyal. to uh, three versus four opsins and the increased ability of males in some circumstances to detect differences in patterns. That reminds me of, um, isn't it true that I think during World War II, um, there was a phenomenon where, you know, American planes would fly over various areas on the battlefield and take photos in black and white. And I think it turned out that, that colorblind men were better in some ways at detecting patterns and seeing sort of hidden enemy formations in those photos than were people with um, trichromat vision. So I wonder if it's the same kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. With um, New World monkeys, males are always co colorblind, and um, there have been behavioral tests showing the same thing, that they're better at detecting camouflaged objects than the female monkeys are, which which you know, can have trichromacy or they can also be dichromat, but there's definitely a trade-off. There's definitely an advantage to um, those camouflaged object detection, which you can imagine would be beneficial in a troop where you're trying to avoid predators while foraging. You know, some of the troop is like, you know, gathering the fruit and the leaves. Um, the other parts of the troop are really looking for predators. Uh, so that would be great if um, there was some specialization. You're right. Some diversity of abilities. Yeah. Neat. Um, so, so let me just step back here and ask one super broad question. And we've already approached, I think, this in a, in a multitude of ways. But um, if if I had to, I guess I am going to ask you, um, so what do you, what do you think are the major drivers of evolutionary diversity in visual systems? And if I could sort of contrast two possible things, one would be like the ecological circumstances that individuals and populations find themselves in, like the light environment and the, you know, the sorts of objects that they're trying to detect and distinguish in those environments versus sexual signaling and, um, you know, all of the sexual processes that are driving sexual selection. Of those two things, what do you think is, is more important or is it context dependent? Well, I think I think that uh, the I would say that it is context dependent, but I would say that first is the light environment. Um, the The best evidence we have for selection on visual systems really comes from aquatic environments where 
you can see that when the amount of light is reduced in particular wavelengths that the rhodopsins are tuned to track that <laughs> so that um, you know, they're more likely to detect fo available photons. So the best evidence for selection on what we call spectral tuning comes from these environments where, you know, sunlight has been filtered, so you only have a, a narrow range of photons available. Um, in terrestrial systems, the evidence for tuning on the basis of anything is much more limited. And I think, you know, I think that's partly because, you know, one, sunlight is a bit more broad spectrum than uh, under the ocean. Um, and then it just requires just the physiology and, you know, like following, you know, males and females, like as they're doing things, you know, in nature to, to um, really discover things. I, I think there is a, a bias in the behavioral literature, at least with our, our little butterflies, where where people, um, you know, don't really distinguish, you know, for example, are males and females following different, are going to different flowers. I found one paper, uh, which is very interesting, which shows that male and female heliconius butterflies of one particular species collect pollen differentially. Um, females prefer one group of plants versus another, and that's extremely interesting, but that's the only study I've found. So this question of um, specialization, I think, I think we'll find stories, we'll find examples where we have compelling evidence of sex-specific natural selection, like, you know, like a particular host plant and its colors, really important for the female, so they're going to be tuning into that. Um, males, if, if color is important for their signaling, and not, not all butterflies, color is particularly important, you know, you might also have pressure on males to tune their eyes to look at those particular colors. Uh, but the devil, the devil is really in the details of the natural history, I think, for a lot of these organisms. As it often is. Yes. <laughs> it feels like we keep circling back to the, the same kind of thing, but uh, uh, I just, stomatopods, to leave the, the butterfly world for a little bit, aren't those the sort of... Um, the ones that get all the attention, the ones that are sort of known for their photoreceptor diversity. Do we have an idea of why that might be? Well, they have... Um... <laughs> they're the heliconius of the sea, right? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're really interesting. I mean, they're, very, they're old lineages. Um, they use different kinds of visual signals they use color they use polarized light they use like different kinds of polarized light and they've been investigated a lot um and so which is which is great because people keep discovering you know new and cool things that they do i don't think we really know why they have such complicated visual systems i mean i'm sure that there were other marine invertebrates that probably had fascinating visual systems like I don't know some of the trilobite eyes are really really wild so so um, we've just you know lost things <laughs> and also um, we just haven't studied you know that many organisms but why are they like that I mean it's it's really I can't really say I can't really speculate yeah you may you now, you, now that you've said trilobite I have to probe there what what do we know? I've never heard about trilobites having exceptional eyes. In, in what way, I mean, do we expect that they were exceptional? 
of course, we'll never directly know. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of uh, variation in, in the morphology of trilobite eyes. So some some eyes are, it's like imagine the carapace. I mean, they're just they're just like right, you know, part of the carapace. So like, you know, they stick out little bulges and you see the, the facets. Others are in these incredible like eye stalks. They're on the tips of the eye stalks. I mean, when you look at them, you think that they're a snail. Um, but actually it's like these eye stalks, so the, the eyes are the, the tips. Um, those are probably things that were like to bury themselves in mud and just put up these little, um, periscope, <laughs> um, eyes. And then you have others that have these incredible columnar arrays of omatidia. So like they literally look like half cylinders covered with facets, um, so there's just a tremendous amount of variation. I mean, they, they were around for hundreds of millions of years. And so, um, you know, why not? <laughs> why not some more, you know, difference there? Well, I think it might be time to move to just a couple of wrap-up questions. Um, wanted to ask you if you just look forward a few years or maybe even five or ten what what are the big new things on the horizon for vision research and you know what what sorts of things is your lab going to be pursuing not not to have you spill the beans about your next grant proposal but you know (laughs) yeah um i first i think that there's a lot of really cool behavioral work to be done there's so much that we don't know about what these butterflies can see so I expect that we're going to be really trying to investigate more of their, you know, their visual capacities. That's that's one thing that's really high on my, my agenda. And then, of course, now we have the ability to turn off genes. So we're starting to work on that. It's a little bit ch- more challenging to work on a visual phenotype than it is on, say, a um, visible phenotype like wing color, because it's very obvious as soon as the butterfly closes from the pupa that something has happened or not with um, turning off a gene. But with vision, you have to, you have to sacrifice the animal and, you know, cut open its eyeball and look at it under a microscope. Um, So it's a lot more work, but we are, um, we are starting to try to, to try to do that. And COVID, COVID didn't help because you have to have a colony of butterflies and we had to shut it down, but we're, um, we're trying again. Do you think that there's much that lies in the signal processing side. I mean, going forward, has there been a ton of attention? You know, you alluded to what goes on in the retina, you know, relative to how we process visual signals. But do you think that there's a lot more to do there and there's just it's just difficult to work on? So what kind of surprises or excitement might you expect there? Um, yeah, I think there's, there's uh, we you know, our understanding is, you know, really in its infancy. And that goes back to something you mentioned earlier about the need for you know physiology and comparative physiology it's it's a it's a it's really a, a desperate need <laughs> so to speak um so i think there's a tremendous opportunity there for for folks who who want to make a, a you know a genuine contribution and carve out their own niche i mean that's in some ways i feel like i've been allowed to have a, a particular kind of scientific career because i've been able to carve out a niche in a, a semi-obscure um, area um, and, you know, make some contributions, uh, you know, as a consequence. But I think there's, it's a, it's a rich area with a lot of potential. Well, we always end by asking uh, uh, 
this question, which is whether there's anything else you'd like to say that we haven't covered. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's so many, there's so many things that one could talk about. Um, I mean, I, I just hope that, um, I don't know. I hope that with the pandemic and all of its, you know, trickle trickling effects, um, everywhere that, you know, we will still, will emerge from this and still have a place for the kind of, um, careful natural history and comparative biology work that that'll, that'll still be valued. I think there's, there's tremendous, uh, discovery to be made. And, and I hope that, you know, um, more senior folks are willing to, uh, invest in younger folks to take on these kinds of questions that really circle back to basic, you know, observations, uh, in the field. Yeah. Power of basic science. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to talk it over. Thank you so much. This has been great fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. To support the show, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. We'd also like to take a moment to say a huge thank you to some of our most generous and devoted patrons, particularly Carol Woods Go Mom. and Gilbert Miller. Thank you for all you've done to help keep this project going. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, or a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also help us reach an even wider audience by recommending this podcast to a friend or spreading the word on social media. As a nonprofit, we rely on your help to reach more people. On the next episode, we talk to Carl Friston, a British neuroscientist at University College London. Carl's best known for proposing the free energy principle, a concept based on Bayesian ideas proposed to explain how the brain works. If I wanted to know how my internal states are going to change in the immediate future, then I only need to know the Markov blanket states, the surrounding states. I don't need to know the rest of the universe. So that means that the internal states are conditionally independent of the external states given the Markov blanket state. So Markov blanket provides a boundary. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thanks also to Jordan Greer, Natasha Damright, Kyle Smith, and Blaine Doherty for helping produce this episode, and Keating Shamari for producing the cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.